Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, please do turn with me to the book of Revelation. Um, We are going to be in chapter 1 and verses 9 through 20. I make this joke often when I'm in the States. They say that Brits and Americans are two people separated by a common language. So please, if I am too quick or use weird phrases you don't understand, throw something heavy. Right, I'll, I'll duck and know to clarify. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's go to God's Word together. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he lay his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask now as we come to spend time in your word together that you would grant us grace. You would grant us ears to hear and minds to comprehend, hearts that would love Christ and wills that would obey him. Lord, help us, we pray. Come and help us this morning by your spirit to see Jesus as he is and to love him as we should. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, We are in the book of Revelation on Christ the King Sunday. By God's providence, we decided to preach this. I had no idea this was Christ the King Sunday, but this is a really good day to stare our eyes out at Jesus. And and that's what I want to invite us to do this morning. You know the old hymn says, Soul, are you weary and troubled? There's no light in the darkness to see, but there's light for a look at your Savior and life more abundant and free. And then the refrain goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look 
full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This morning, I want us to stare at Jesus. This book of Revelation is really in many ways, though complex and confusing to us, very simple. And the whole point of this book is really encapsulated here in this first chapter and in the phrase, stare your eyes out at your king. Stare your eyes out at your king. This book is in many ways summed up in a microcosm in this first vision that John receives of Christ. And I want us to see kind of three beautiful things as we move through our passage. But before we get into the meat of the vision, I want us just to fix the kind of context of this book and of this vision in our minds. Look with me quickly at verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, an account of the testimony of Jesus. So the question, first of all, is where is John? Well, he's on Patmos. That's clear. Where is that? Well, Patmos is a little tiny island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 17 miles across in size. It is part of modern-day Greece, though it is, in fact, much closer to modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, as it was known in the time where this book was written. It is relatively close to the area where these seven churches are. It is off the coast of that area. So that's where we are. But the more important point for us to understand this morning is why are we there? Why is John on Patmos? And the answer is found in how John describes himself and his circumstances in verse 9. He calls himself first his, their brother and their partner in tribulation, in trial, in difficulty. He goes on to tell us that he is on Patmos, not for a jolly holiday on an Aegean island. No, he is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The book of Revelation was written to the church during a time of heavy persecution under the emperor, I would say under the emperor Domitian, somewhere around the mid-90s AD. One of the many reasons we believe it was written during this period was the fact that John himself had been exiled to an Aegean island. This was one of Domitian's favorite things to do to people who irritated him. He famously exiled one of his wives to a similar island in the Mediterranean for displeasing him. This emperor, Domitian, really went to town with the Roman emperor cult, with the idea that the Roman emperors were divine, that they were Lord and God. Now, this idea had been around for a long time in Roman culture, but very few of the emperors actually pressed it home as a thing. Domitian was one who really kind of went to town with the idea. At the heart of the emperor cult was a confession. 
that required all within the Roman Empire to recognize Caesar as Lord and God. A profession of faith, ultimately, that we will all agree is somewhat problematic for the Christian. Right? The believer recognizes Jesus as the only true Lord and God. These contradictory professions and contradictory lords ultimately put the people of God in the firing line for hard suffering and persecution from the Roman state during the reign of Domitian. John's faithful proclamation of the word of God and his testimony that Jesus is Lord and God is the reason he finds himself on this island of Patmos. That's the background to the vision that John is given. And ultimately, it's the background to the whole book of Revelation. This book is written as good news and comfort to strengthen those who are suffering and struggling on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is super important, so I'll repeat it. This book is written, the book of Revelation, is written to strengthen those who are suffering and struggling on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice from the text that John not only tells us where he is or why he's there, he tells us what he's doing while he's there. He says to the church he is partnering with them in tribulation and in the kingdom of God. And this is the key point here. He is patiently enduring in Jesus, his Savior, Lord and God. And so the question for us this morning is how do you do that? How do you patiently, joyfully partner in tribulation and endure in Jesus while suffering? That's the question. And there's, I believe, three answers in this beautiful text that we have before us. The first one is this, hear the word of the Lord. The second one, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And then finally, rest in his sovereign grace and rule. So if you're a note taker, that's where we're going this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And then finally, rest in his sovereign grace and rule. So our first point this morning, look at verse 10 with me. Hear the word of the Lord. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This little phrase, I was in the spirit, that John begins verse 10 with, isn't throwaway spirituality by any means. This is a phrase that occurs several times throughout the book of the Revelation and it marks the beginning of visions. And more importantly for us this morning, it reminds us of the source of the visions John is seeing. John isn't dreaming here. He's not tripping here as he turns to see Jesus. No, he is being lifted into the heavenly realm by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to receive the word of the Lord and to faithfully transmit it to the people of God. One commentator says this, the Spirit gave John inspired authority of a unique kind. But this unique level of inspiration is still a pattern for the witness of all Christians. We are all, as a church, to prophesy in a 
extended sense by bearing the testimony of Jesus to the world. We are all to tell of what we have heard. We are all to tell of what we have seen. So John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He is worshipping on the first day of the week on Sunday. And he is lifted out of his rocky exile on Patmos and into the heavenly realm. And then it says he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Remember, John is on Patmos due to Domitian's fierce persecution. A persecution that was particularly fierce in the region of Asia Minor where the book of Revelation is centered and focused. The reason John receives his vision is the same reason the churches are to receive it in order for them to patiently endure in Jesus in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. John hears this loud voice and I love the description of the voice given here in our passage in verse 10 and 15. This voice is first of all like a trumpet and then it is like the roar of many waters. These are word pictures that declare might and power and authority and royalty in the word of Christ. The trumpet comers, kind of conjures up images of royal fanfare and it should because the ruler of kings on earth is here. That's the point. This phrase back in verse 5 that Christ is the ruler of kings on earth is itself a comfort and a challenge in John's day. It is a comfort to him. Domitian may call himself Lord. He may be mighty. He may be able to stick you on some backwater island in the Mediterranean. He may even be able to take your life, but nonetheless, he is ruled over by the king of kings on earth. John hears this mighty voice, and what it does is it causes him to turn and look upon the one speaking. And this is what I want us to grasp this morning. This is what the word of the Lord always does. In the Spirit's power, it causes us to turn and look upon Jesus. All right, we'll consider what John sees in a second, but first, I want to drive home for us the necessity of hearing the word of the Lord in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pandemic, right? in the midst of all the chaos and hardship of life, when it gets difficult, when we're suffering, particularly for our witness, two things naturally occur. First of all, we become almost instantaneously obsessed with our circumstances. Right? The moment we suffer, we become naturally obsessed with the situation we find ourselves in. Our pain becomes the sun around which our lives revolve, and we are drawn inward, and our eyes are cast downwards. We navel-gaze literally. We become an inward-focused being. Secondly, if the suffering comes, particularly from bearing witness for our faith, there is a natural desire to roll it back a little, to tone it down, to rein it in, to look a little bit less, let's say, Christian-y. Right? Both of these ideas, as I said, are natural, they're understandable, 
However, they are both incredibly harmful to us. What we need most in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering is a voice like a trumpet to drag our eyes off ourself and off our circumstances. And to drag our eyes onto Jesus. Because what we see when we look at him will provide us with all the strength and grace we could ever need. And will ultimately realign our understanding of our circumstances. One commentator writes, whenever God has anything to impart to his people during the Old Testament dispensation, he gathered them together by means of a trumpet sound. It's no accident that John describes the Lord's voice as a trumpet here, because the truth is we are being summoned, summoned into the Lord's presence and commanded to look upon his excellence in order that we would be strengthened. So that's the first point there. The word of the Lord is a trumpet that summons us to lift our eyes off your circumstances, off your daily difficulties, and on to Jesus. Now let's look upon Jesus together. I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and a golden sash was around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I love this picture we are given here of Jesus, and you need to, to, please can I encourage you this morning to stare your eyes out at Jesus as we consider this section. I mean, really lock this vision in to your mind's eye. Stare until your worldly kind of understanding of who Jesus is and the pictures that you get from the world of Jesus vanish from your mind. Stare until all you can see when you think about Jesus is this image, along with maybe the one in chapter 19, which is basically the same, except he has a very cool white horse, right? more crowns, and his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. Stare until that's what you see when you think on Jesus. Now, it might sound like I'm being playful here, but I'm really not. I'm deadly serious. Stare your eyes out at Jesus. Too many of us carry images of Jesus that are utterly out of whack with the reality of who he is. Too many of us carry a picture of Jesus in our mind's eye that has far more in common with a stained glass window or a L'Oreal hair model than the king of the universe. Worse, some of us come from the Roman Catholic tradition and we commonly picture Christ as a ruined, broken, defeated man hanging on a tree. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus did hang on a cross, and there he died in the place of his people in order to save us from our sins and deliver us from the wrath of God. But that's not where Jesus is now, and that's not how he looks today. Today, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is ruling and reigning on the throne of heaven. 
he is sustaining all things by the word of his power. And he looks exactly like this passage describes him. You might sat there thinking, all right, Matheson, I get it. Jesus doesn't have feathered hair and a little lamb over his shoulders, but why does it matter how I picture Jesus? Well, the answer is quite simple. How does stained glass window Jesus do against the might of the Roman armies? Not particularly well. Can that guy defeat and crush a great red dragon? No. But this guy can. Jesus, reigning and ruling, he can. He can answer prayer. He can deliver you from tribulation. He can strengthen you to endure. The real Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, second person of the Trinity, the God-man, champion over Satan's sin, death, and the grave, the Jesus who walks among the lampstands holding stars in his hand, that one can help you. Look again. I turned and I saw the one speaking to me. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, golden sash around his chest, hair white like wool, eyes on fire, feet of burnished bronze, a voice like a roar of waters, holding stars in his hand and a sword from his mouth. His face shines like the sun in full strength. It's pretty cool. John's vision of Jesus also begins by giving us Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. It's important because it means that this vision of Christ starts by telling us that the one we are seeing is the one that the Ancient of Days has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. That's who the Son of Man is. He's the king of the universe. He's unconquerable and unstoppable. This vision isn't just given us to help us in the midst of trial and suffering, to sustain us there. No, it's given to show the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7. Right? Vern Papyrus says this. He says, Christ is described here as someone like a son of man because he fulfills the vision of Daniel Daniel sees in the future a mysterious, exalted human figure who brings an end to the succession of pagan world-dominating kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. What was a distant vision for Daniel has now become the reality through Christ's death and resurrection. Christ has received the promised dominion from the Ancient of Days, and the effects of his authority are now being worked out in history with justice and discrimination of the holy judge. He is weighing the good and the bad among the seven churches. And he is promising, and we'll see if you continue to read the book, suitable rewards and punishments. He has the role, the key role in judgment, not only in the church, but in the whole world. He's the Lord of all the earth. Let's look at how the picture continues to describe him. He is clothed in a long robe. And he has a golden sash around his chest. This robe that he wears is the robe of a priest. And it reminds us of his purity and his holiness. It also reminds us of his role as our interceder. 
He is the one that makes a way for those who are his to come to God. He is the Holy One. This is backed up by the sash around his chest. This is the outfit of the high priest. This golden color signifies majesty and honor and glory in the one who wears it. The hairs of his head are white, white like wool. In Daniel 7, 9, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is described as having pure hair, white like wool. And here we see like father, like son. This is a picture that is reminding us of the divinity of Jesus. This is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity. We are being told here that that which is true of the Father is true of the Son. White, again, is a sign of purity. It's also a sign of holiness, but particularly in the context of hair, it's a sign of wisdom. And here we're being told that the Son of Man is both perfectly pure and perfectly wise, that the one who governs history does it wisely. It's helpful to know in the midst of suffering that there's a purpose, that this isn't happening scattergun. No, this is being wisely ruled. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Again, the symbolism here is purity and holiness. I wonder if you think the Lord's trying to tell us something about himself here. He is laying on the holiness imagery in a big way. On top of that, fire in the scripture usually accompanies theophanies anytime God appears. And that is the case here. John is turning to see God himself. His feet are burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, the purity imagery goes on unabated. This is burnished bronze. It's refined in a furnace. The brightness of the, the metal, again, seems to signify the presence of God. This language picks up on language from Ezekiel chapter 1. But this image has layers now. Bronze is associated with weaponry, with warfare. And so here we have imagery of justice and judgment. As you suffer under the hand of Domitian, know this, the Lord of the earth is the true judge. The king of kings, the wise one, is the one who wields ultimate authority and ultimate justice. His voice, as we said, is like the roar of many walkers. Again, highlighting his power, his authority, the sheer volume of his voice picks up themes from Daniel and Ezekiel. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars. Just consider that image for a second. Just holding stars casually. Power upon power to casually hold stars. This one actually holds the whole universe in his hand. Casually, with ease. These stars are the angels of the seven churches. The greater symbol here is a symbol of Jesus' dominion over the heavenly host and over the armies of the kingdom of heaven. He rules and reigns. He is the mighty one. He is the commander of the armies of the Lord. They are his to do as he wishes with. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This sharp sword signifies the right of Christ to rule and to judge, to punish and to reward. To wield the sword 
is an image we see often in Scripture. See Paul talk of how Rome wields the sword to judge. Here we see the ultimate vision of that. The word of the Lord from the mouth of the king is the ultimate right to rule and reward, to judge and punish. It's a symbol of authority, of kingship, of dominion. It's no accident that the words of the one John commonly refers to as the word of God are described using the very same imagery that the scriptures describe themselves with. Finally, his face is like the sun in its full strength. This picture of Jesus climaxes with this final declaration of his majesty, of his purity, of his awesomeness. His face is like the sun in its full strength. Remember, John is on a Aegean island. He's from Israel. He knows a thing or two about the heat and fierceness of the sun and its strength. It is overwhelming here, the idea. There is an overwhelming radiance to Christ. Take a second with me as we kind of turn the corner here just to consider who John the Apostle is. He is the disciple who Jesus loved. He's the one who rested his head on the shoulder of Jesus as they reclined at table. He's the man that Jesus entrusted to care for his mother after his death and resurrection. To put it simply, John the Apostle is the closest thing to a best friend that Christ had on this earth. Look at his reaction to seeing Jesus in his glory. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If ever there was a man who could claim the phrase rightfully, Jesus is my homeboy, it was John. It's not how John reacts though, is it? When he sees Christ in his splendor, he falls at his feet as though dead. He sees the holy, holy, holy one and his reaction is just the same as Isaiah's. He assumes, I'm a dead man. If you're asking me how I know John falls down in terror and isn't simply overcome by the majesty of Jesus, there's a glaring um, clue in the text. How does Jesus respond to John? Well, the first phrase out of his mouth is, fear not. Suggesting perhaps that John was terrified upon seeing Jesus and proving that John himself is no fool, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. We live in a day, in a church age, where many of us are far too comfortable with Jesus. He is certainly the friend of sinners. He is the savior of those who come to him in repentance of faith. He is the lover of your soul but he is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the ruler of the armies of heaven. He is God Almighty and the great I am. C.S. Lewis kind of nails this distinction wonderfully when he's discussing in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe meeting Aslan for the first time. And Lucy is slightly kind of, I think it's Susan actually, is slightly, let's say, comfortable in her approach, thinking Aslan's just another guy. She says, Aslan is a man, says Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. 
Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there is someone that can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave or stupid. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I absolutely adore Peter's response to this correction by the beavers. He says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when the moment comes. I hope, as you stare at Jesus this morning, that even though you, like John, will be frightened when it comes to the point, are longing to see him. Finally, let's look at John's or Jesus' response to John and see how this provides us with comfort and strength. Fear not, Jesus says. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are to take place after this. Fear not, John. You don't need to be afraid of me. And you certainly don't need to be afraid of Domitian or anything else that this world or the enemy can throw at you. How can Jesus say this? Because he's the first and the last. He's the Lord and ruler of history. There is nothing, therefore, that unfolds in time and space that does so outside of his sovereign rule. Quite frankly, Jesus has history surrounded. He's about to give John a message that basically explains how the whole rest of history is going to unfold. He is the master of time. He rules the cosmos. He has everything in and under his control. But the comfort goes further and deeper than simply his sovereign power. He is also the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death. And hey, John falls down as one dead before the judge of all the earth. And in this moment of beautiful, gentle, gracious compassion, the one whose face is like the sun in his full strength lays his hand on him. And he reminds John of the gospel. No, John, don't fear death. Don't fear judgment. And the reason you don't have to face it is because I've done it for you. I've done it for you. I've done what you could never do for yourself. I lived a life you haven't lived, that perfect, law-fulfilling life that my father required. I earned the crown of righteousness and eternal life, but instead of simply taking what was rightfully his, he exchanged it for what was rightfully mine. He took upon himself the sin of his people, and on that cross, he took the fierce wrath of God in our stead. He was crushed and he died and he went to the grave. And on the third day, he rose again, having conquered our great enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He returned to his father and now, today, he is ruling and reigning over all things. This Jesus, the King of kings, now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from the King of the universe. Repent and believe the gospel. John has done this. And so his fear can be relieved and lifted from him. That is only true of the Christian. 
is only true of those who are in Christ. They can face Christ without fear of death or judgment, with hope and security. Those who refuse the king will face his judgment and endure his wrath. That is hell and eternity forever. Don't want to do that? Well, the answer is this. Come to him in repentance and faith and receive from him life eternal. The believer's fear, however, is what is our comfort. How is that lifted from us? Well, the believer's fear of death and judgment and hell is lifted from them by the work of Christ, but also our fear of the world and anything the enemy can throw at us. What is the worst thing that the mission can do to John? The answer is kill him. That's the best he's got. The worst thing Domitian could do to John, the worst thing the enemy can ultimately throw at any of us, is stingless to us. That's the good news for the believer. Death has no sting. It has no victory. To live is Christ, Paul says, to die is gain. The world and the enemy takes its fiercest shot. It delivers its greatest strike. And all it does to the believer is promote them to glory. We die, we depart to be with Jesus in heaven in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And this is what we need to remember when it's all on top, when it's dark and when we're suffering, when we're in the midst of pandemic or in the midst of persecution. We hear the word of the Lord. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We remember who is ruling and reigning over all things. We remember that this one loves us died for us and is raised to life that we might live and remember that he's got you in his hand just as he holds stars and galaxies and the whole cosmos and that the worst this universe can do will only ultimately serve to bless you this is who your king is this morning let's worship him together let's pray father we love you Lord we thank you for our King Jesus. We thank you that he's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived the life we haven't lived. He died the death we deserve. We deserve and he is raised to life that we might live. He rules and reigns now over all things and one day he will return to gather his people to be with him forever and he will put away all of the suffering of the enemy's work forever. Lord, help us to trust Jesus today. Help us to see him as he is and help us to love him as we should. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and sing one song together.